Pete. Hello there. How are you, mate? I'm well. How are you, my friend? I'm very well, very well, very, very excited, actually. Um, and I feel like I say that on every podcast, but uh, <laughs> I'm, you I'm, do. I'm, particularly, I'm particularly excited today. Yeah, I agree, actually. It's, um, I agree with both sentiments. We are always excited, regardless of who uh, we're talking to, but today's guest is particularly special. <laughs> so without further ado, um, our guest today is... Mr. Terence Kennedy Mills, oh, uh, otherwise known as TK Mills or <laughs> Terry. Um, I have had the privilege of knowing Terry now since about, I'm going to say, 2003, uh, when I, Terry was then the opposition leader in the mm. CLP, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, Terry, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Leon. Now you know my middle name. What's yours? <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you that. If and when I, I run for politics. <laughs> oh, right, yeah. <laughs> Will you also release your tax statements? <laughs> Just after Donald. Uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so um, we, we've it's, it's been a while, but we've wanted to have you on this podcast. Yeah. Um, we um, uh, we've invited a lot of politicians, haven't we, Pete? We have, and even a couple of them have accepted. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we, we uh, are apolitical here on Bound as Possible. We yeah. like to talk to all uh, and sundry. We think everybody has something to say. Yeah. Um, Terry, before we get into uh, what has been a very important announcement that you've made uh, yesterday, and in fact, you've been on the media a lot today, before we get into that part of the story, <laughs> which we're all very excited and waiting to yeah. hear about, um, t- tell us your territory story. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> 1989, Leon, um, that was the last day, on the last day of the, the eighth decade. Yeah. So we arrived here New Year's Eve, 1989, and saw the sun go down uh, from the veranda of a house that we were looking at in 1989, and it rose the opposite direction, of course, uh, in... Um, January the 1st, 1990. So I remember watching that sun come up. And uh, this is the beginning of a whole new story. But what brought me to that point where I was observing this big uh, marker was that I started out as a farmer in Midwest WA. So is that where you were born? Yeah, I was born in Geraldton. Geraldton. Yeah. About 400 kilometres north of Perth. Correct, right? yeah. And uh, in a little country town... Uh, just miles, 60 miles inland from Geraldton. What was that called? Mullawar. Yeah, right. And funnily enough, while I mentioned Mullawar, there are a number of Mullawar people that live here in Palmerston. Um, but that's a very interesting other story as to why they're here. <laughs> mm. um, the well-beaten all I can, path. All I can say, there was a lot of public housing in Palmerston at the beginning. There was a football team called Southern Districts, which was the closest team to Palmerston. It was red, black and white. And that team in Mullawar, red, black and white, the Saints, had a lot of really good football players. And the season in WA is the opposite of the season here. And so some of them came up here and saw the great opportunity and the beautiful lifestyle. And I've got many of my um, mates that I went to school with uh, living in Palmerston. So, yeah, came, wow. came, came um, from uh, farming. I went, grew up as an eldest son, farmer's son. 
every expectation. There's no question about it. You are to be a farmer. That's that's the story. And, and what uh, sort of farming was it? It was wheat and sheep, wheat and sheep. Uh, some cattle. It was always pretty tough because it's sort of marginal, often didn't rain. Uh, and, you know, we had lots of worries about whether we were going to survive or not. We saw some farmers not. Tough, tough game. Uh, loved it, though. And I still feel inside that that's me. Uh, but we had some terrible droughts when I left school. There were seven years of awful droughts. And not only was nothing able to be grown, the sheep had nothing to eat. And... Uh, so we had to sell sheep, uh, but the price that we're getting for, for lamb, any sheep, was next to nothing. It weren't even covering the cost of the trucking. And I remember one tragic uh, afternoon that I still hold um, in my memory uh, that we had no other um, course of action that Dad and I had to kill a, a number of sheep mm. because there was nothing for them to eat. We couldn't ship them out, and they would be taking any nutrient that there may be uh, for some of the young ewes that were giving birth, and there was no sign of rain. It was a horrible, horrible day. Wow. Um, so those sort of things, and I've got two brothers that were dead keen on farming. It's all they ever wanted, um, and I had that. I've been the eldest. Uh, I looked around and thought, this is this is really tough, and there's probably not room on the farm for me and my two brothers. Um, and I did a bit better at school than they looked like they were going to do, and I had other interests. So I then ultimately, cut a long story short, went off to teacher's college, and I thought I'll, I'll embark on a different path. So as a mature age student, I left and went to teacher's college. How old were you then? Uh, 22. Right. Yeah. Okay. So about five years. Yeah. Old in the yeah. And, um, and when I told Dad that I was leaving, um, it was, to me, it was a big decision. I, I knew how important the decision was, but uh, I told Dad, and um, he didn't react as I thought he would. He burst into tears, and he started, uh, mm. like he was in, in, in turmoil that, that I was leaving. And I said, oh, but Dad, Dad, I'm doing this for good reason, and, and, and you've always said, Dad, that there's no future in farming. And you know what Dad said? That's what farmers say, son. <laughs> <laughs> Don't want you to leave. And I said, well, I, I have to, and, and I am going to. And it was actually, you know, in hindsight, painful, though. It was a good decision. So ultimately, I taught in Perth in a, in a non-government school for seven years. At the end of the seven years, I, I had, or during those seven years, I began to develop a strong interest in Australia's place in the region, that Australia was a part of the Southeast Asian region, and that had certain implications that needed to be considered. Paul Keating was the Prime Minister, and he really ticked, uh, kicked that conversation along. And at that time, Sahado was in decline, and many uh, families were moving from Indonesia to Perth. Because of my interest in Indonesian culture and language and history, uh, I became um, a supporter uh, for those families uh, in terms of helping them with their education and settling in and so on. Out of that form, very long friendships that exist till today with very significant people in Indonesia. But when I was following this idea through, I, I learned of Paul Everingham up in the Northern Territory that the Territory was really running the story. The narrative was being driven from North Australia, the Northern Territory, about Australia's place in the region. And that got my attention. And I thought, well, 
I think it's time for us to move, Roz. Uh, I wanted to get out of the cloistered environment of a school uh, and get into something bigger. Uh, but I had kid, little kids at the time and... So uh, back that up a little bit, when, where did where and when did you meet Roz? Oh, Joe is so right. Very good. Um, well, um, I was uh, involved in uh, a, a church group and we used to um, run a coffee shop for people that were on the streets. Now, Roz wasn't one of those on the streets. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering where um, that was going. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, good on you, Pat. I'm glad you're there, mate. Uh, but I, I should share with you that uh, what people may not know that that um, at that time I was a musician. I, I played and um, so I was, what, what instrument? Oh, guitar. Yeah. yeah, and um, and so there was a baptism service to be held, and Ros's twin sister had become involved. And because they are a European family, Croatian, when one member does something important, the whole family turns out to support, whether they support it or not. Um, so at that event um, of that baptism, uh, I spotted Roz's, uh, spotted Roz, which is Lynn's twin sister. And uh, the rest is history, <laughs> except there is some amazing history. They came out from Croatia, from Dalmatia. Uh, her grandparents did. After the war? Yeah, after the war. Oh, in fact, before the war. There were, there were famines uh, and there was some political turmoil in, in that part of the world. And I've visited the village since, and you can see it was just uh, a village built on rocks. Uh, people were dying of hunger, and they moved to Australia before World War II. Now, they went to Fremantle, and then they looked for opportunities, and there were opportunities with ex expansion of agriculture in the north, uh, railways and so on, that the family went to Mullawar, the little town that I grew up in. Oh, wow. Of all places, a little town called wow. Kufa in, in Dalmatia to a little town called Mullawar in Western Australia. But you didn't know her then? Never. My goodness. Didn't know. But it gets weirder wow. than that, is that Roz, um, uh, this is a story that was in her family. So they go to this little town and, and of course, they're very enterprising. Um, they grow vegetables for the for the the miners and the pastoralists and everyone else passing through. Uh, he provides translation services. He knew a few languages. They ran a laundry. And then other opportunities came when my grandfather opened up a new farm 27 miles out of Mullawar. And these two men, uh, my, father, uh, my, my wife's grandfather and his brother, they walked all the way out to my grandfather's farm and cleared the land by hand. Wow. And we never knew any of this. This was these were stories that came to light afterwards. Right. Not only was it Mullawar, it was our actual farm. Your actual farm. Yeah. And in those days, I remember that the doll was being sent uh, to people's letterboxes. They didn't even have to go to the office to get it. And here is a guy that comes out from Croatia, and they walk 27 miles and clear land with an axe. And I thought, how things have changed. Yes, they have. Yeah. So that's how I met Roz. Right. Um, and we. She was also happened to be teaching uh, at Teachers College, and I was uh, doing cross-cultural um, uh, studies at uh, Claremont Teachers College, and Roz was doing uh, another stream at another teachers college, and I had this need to go and transfer to that. <laughs> to that. Was this the Churchlands campus? Yeah, so I was at Claremont Teachers College, and then we went to Mount Lawley, Mount Lawley. Yeah, which is now Edith Cowan. Yeah. So technically... Perhaps with a bit of a stretch, I'm a graduate from uh, 
Edith Cowan. <laughs> right. I, I then became Edith Cowan Uni. That's my connection. Right. So Roz, having in her DNA this, you know, sense of adventure and exploring, see, she supported it, um, which. But you had kids, though. We had two little kids. It was both, both born in Perth. Both born in Perth. Yeah. How um, old are they now? Oh my gosh, my son's getting married next week. He's 34. And my daughter's 36, and I have two grandsons. Oh, three grandsons. Now. <laughs> three boys. <laughs> yeah. Um, where, is, where are they? Oh, they're all in Perth. Right. So my, my daughter got married. She did all her schooling here except for grade one when we left Perth. She did all of her schooling here. I was her principal because I became, after tossing around, I, I, be, I accepted the position as the first principal of a school here in Palmerston. Yeah. My daughter was there uh, in her second year of schooling. My son joined, um, and he, poor bugger, he spent all that time with his dad being the principal, which really cramped his style. Uh, and so, yeah, so Kristen grew up here, and, uh, and so did Matt. Uh, Kristen's older. Uh, she got married at 23. And, and when did they leave Darwin? Well, that's a good question, because when she, she was in the Institute of Sports and did really well with swimming, so she, she expanded her year 12 over two years and then took a year off and I'm trying to work out what year that was. I'll probably get it wrong and if Ros is listening to this, I'll get scolded. But it was a fair <laughs> while ago. Uh, they she went and studied uh, physiotherapy, graduated, married uh, in Perth. I'm uh, sorry, met him in Perth, but got married in Darwin because there's another amazing story is that the guy that she met um, my daughter phoned me. I was actually door knocking here in Blaine at the time. It was one of the by-elections, one of the elections. And I got a phone call from uh, this Peter, who was my daughter's boyfriend. And he phoned and said, uh, oh, hi, Terry. And I said, oh, I've got a couple of missed calls from you. What's going on? He says, oh, I just wanted to know how the election was going. And I thought, wow, <laughs> how cool is that? So I began to tell him everything about the election. But I... Midway into it, I realised he wasn't actually interested. <laughs> <laughs> I gave him my best stuff. And he off. And I said, oh, okay, yeah, so, right. So what is it? And he says, Terry, I'd like to know if I can marry Kristen. I thought, well, I've, ju <laughs> I've, just, I've just seen that movie, uh, uh, Big Fat Greek Wedding. Yeah, right. And I was so tempted to say, what? Of course you can't. Don't you? So I was almost tempted to do that, but I didn't think he'd get the joke. I said, well, okay. Okay, I thank you for asking. Uh, I admire that. Uh, the answer is yes, but we've got to have a talk about a few things. But it turned out and, that and he, he It's Mr. Born. Mills from now on to you. That's right. There's <laughs> a little contract and some agreement we need to come to. Regarding my little princess. Um, yeah, so he was born in Darwin and um, grew up in Perth. What's his name? His name's Peter Grove. Okay. Yeah, so the family left when we were still here. Right. He was senior in Transport and Works, okay. Dad was. They went to work Transport and Works in WA. And uh, so he was born in Darwin, grew up in Perth. Yeah. Kristen was born in Perth, Perth and grew up in Darwin. And they met in Tokyo. Tokyo. In Tokyo. <laughs> Mm. Anyway, that's another story. There's about 18 podcasts here, I think. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of questions we have to go back on, that's for sure. Yeah, that's right. And, and, so, and what about your son? <laughs> oh, well, Matthew, um, you know, I'm school principal. His, his mum's a teacher. Um, he's a good boy. Uh, he, he worked hard, but he's 
he learned Indonesian, for example. Then he went to Camilda and he had the option between sport or Indonesian. Guess what he chose? Sport. Yeah, mm-hmm. and he loved Aussie rules. Mm-hmm. And then he, um, because I left the farm, I left the land, he, you know, that's still a very important part of who we are. And he wanted to go back on the land. He, and uh, so we worked to find him the best place to go. So he worked for Stanbroke uh, uh, Pastoral Company as a as a uh, apprentice stockman. And he ended up working on the land in far north Queensland, uh, in the Territory, Markley, as a head stockman and a, a um, contract musterer for some time. Mm. And then, it, but it, tough work and with strong men around him, great culture. I, you know, admired him for that. Um, Mum used to be worried about him playing Aussie rules because he might get hurt. He played for Palmerston <laughs> and the, uh, uh, what do you call them, uh, Nightcliff Tigers. But what she didn't know was yours also was in the rodeo. <laughs> so we had to keep that a bit quiet from Ros, you know, like if you're worried about him getting bumped at the footy, putting him on, getting a, a junior bull ride champion is a different proposition. <laughs> Fortunately, his sister was a physiotherapist, so that might have helped a bit. So he's, um, he, I, I encouraged him to go and get a hard trade because um, parcel industry always challenging in need of young men like that. But, so he went and did a, a boilermaker course, so the apprenticeship as a mature age uh, entry. And he said, I'll do that so I can build cattle yards and, and sheds and stuff. But he ended up working up here at MMC and uh, Owen Pike. Yes, we've known, Owen. Yes. We've known that family from WA from a long time ago. Yes, yes. There's another story in that, which yes, I'd love to tell yes, you about. Yes. Um, it involves an esky, uh, <laughs> but we'll put that to the side. Sounds like so a territory he, story. He, um, He's done really well there, and um, and he's got he's building his own uh, property uh, house out on his land out here. But a little while back, he met um, a beautiful lady that uh, came all the way from London. Um, she's born in Shanghai, grew up in Hong Kong, studied in Adelaide, um, ended up in London with Hilton, and she was uh, one of the directors in um, in Hilton with a number of hotels in London. And then went and had a change of direction and ended up back in Adelaide thinking, now, what, how I'll restart my, my story. And she felt she got an invitation to apply for a job in Darwin. And so last year she came to Darwin. It so happened that a guy who used to be my media advisor in, when I was chief minister was from London. And in a city of 8 million people, he happened to meet her. And when she announced to the world that she was coming to Darwin, he contacted her and said, you've got to catch up with Terry. So uh, I met up with, with her and we, uh, Ros and I looked after for a bit, introduced her to a few friends. It so happened that some of those friends were friends with my son. There you go. So dad wasn't actually the coach or the organizer. <laughs> ah, this had just happened. That was an arranged marriage there. It was. I was going to say that. Not by me. That was back to yesterday, so that getting, one. He's getting married uh, next Monday. In, in Bali, Bali, because people coming from you know Hong Kong, Shanghai, US, uh, and Perth. Right. Yeah. And what's her name? Her name is Becca Yu. So, so she's Chinese. Yeah, she's right. Chinese. Right. So I was going to ask you, born in Shanghai. Yeah, yeah, she's right. Chinese. Right. Yeah. Okay. So it's very exciting. Yeah. yeah. Well, it sounds like you've done an amazingly good job uh, raising two wonderful children. Well, yeah, with some help, and um, we've got this wedding in front of us now, and. Um, 
you know, you, you'd never imagine that you'd be connected to another family. They'd become a part of your family. It'd just be handy if I could speak Mandarin. Oh, <laughs> but you did learn Indonesian, though. Yes, I know. Perhaps if I say that loud enough, they might understand. But, uh, no. and, and you learned Indonesian in Perth? Oh, I sort of, I'd be, yeah, on and off. I've learned it here, uh, in country, privately. I don't speak Indonesian particularly well. I understand it yes. quite well, and I can, uh, when I... Because I, I used to teach English to Indonesian speakers, and um, so if I was to speak Indonesian around them, it sounds like I'm in grade one and they're right. in university. So I'm all right on the streets and in taxis and. Um, you can order a bintang. Yeah, I can order bintang. <laughs> <laughs> Stuff like that. <laughs> so, so you came to Darwin on. New Year's Eve 1990, yeah. or 1989, yeah. uh, and you came, what, as a holiday? Or no, um, I had decided to come to Darwin. Uh, I thought we're going to start a whole new adventure here. But in having made that decision and considering um, that it might be, because I studied sociology and I remember in one lecture they said, if you change your location and your occupation all in one hit, uh, they're pretty potent shocks for a family to absorb. And as a responsible dad, I thought, maybe if I change location and not my occupation. So I'd been pestered about taking, uh, putting my hand up for a job at a new uh, school in Palmerston as principal. I thought, well, that's probably a responsible step to take. And it turned out to be wonderful because it was a, a school that was, I made sure of it, certainly, that it was part of the growing town of Palmerston, very involved with the families. Many of them I still know today. I was principal there for 10 years, and it was very small when we started, didn't even have a proper road into it, um, and it grew up into, it was the first, uh, I, myself and David Cannon at Essington, we yes. were the two that first introduced middle schooling. Right. Yeah. And this is Palmerston Christian School? Palmerston Christian School. Is it still there? It's still there. It's right. still there, and it's, uh, you know, I visit there occasionally, but of course, when you you know you are sort of foundational and part of the DNA there, I always give space to yes. to the others. And who's the current principal out there? His name is Ken McAllister. Right. Yeah, and uh, I'm available always. Um, but um, but really, uh, I got involved in politics during partway through that. I can't remember the year, but it was with Paul Keating, once again, was responsible for getting me into politics. So this is after Keating won the unwinnable election? Correct. Right. And so that was 94, I'm thinking. Yes, I've take... written it down a few times. I've got right. the date written down. Um, yeah. yeah, so you know, I'll tell you that. How come I'm, I'm principal of a school and what I escaped from in Perth was a school that was turned in on itself. Right. And I very much wanted to be a part of a school that was turned outward and very much involved in the community, yeah. playing a role in the community. And so that was exciting. And I could see Palmerston was growing physically, but the community is also growing and developing. And, um, and I thought that if our local member is to leave, which is Barry Coulter, had done a fantastic job in building Palmerston, they're going to need somebody who can help build the community. So I honestly looked around for somebody. You know, who could that be? And I actually tapped some people on the shoulder. But in my quest, I discovered that maybe I should give it a shot. <laughs> but why I got involved in politics uh, principally was, uh, and I've never been aspiring to get into politics like some secret agenda that now people have found out. No, it's true. I never really aspired to that. I aspired to sort of try to 
bring people together and, and work together and solve stuff as a community, as families do and the school communities and so on. And I think no different than a culture of, a, of a, even a multinational organisation. They can change the way they think and feel. So um, when Hewson talked about taxation reform, there needed to be a reset and a rethink about how we operate. And I thought, gee, that, that's quite attractive. That's very interesting. And I remembered too that Keating had the same view, mm. but unsuccessfully able to persuade Labor caucus mm. to that view. Mm. So he got a lot of pushback, so he backed off. And I thought, but no, it doesn't matter. He still believes in that. Mm. So Hewson puts it out, and now Keating is the Prime Minister, and he plays the mm. opposite game mm. to what I believed or thought he believed in. Mm -hmm. And I thought, that doesn't seem right. Is this all about the quest for power or the search for truth? Mm -hmm. So when um, poor old Hewson naively was trying to present this good idea, which ultimately was adopted, but not by, not implemented by him, uh, I, was, I was disturbed by that. Right. And then that night, I watched the election and then Keating got up and said, this is the sweetest victory of them all and my blood boiled. Yeah. I felt I'd witnessed a crime right. against humanity, mm. against democracy, mm. and against the goodwill of normal people. I didn't know how to respond to that. Mm. So that, that sort of set me on fire to try and put that fire out somehow. And the answer was, what do I do with it? What the answer was, I have to just get involved in the process. Mm. So then I looked around and found a branch. I, I, I was never a Labour uh, person. I was always like country party, national mm. party, liberals. Those sort of collection of philosophies is where I find home. Mm. So I didn't choose the CLP first and then work it out the other way. So I had some beliefs and yeah. CLP was the flag carrier at the time. So I, um, I joined the CLP uh, as a branch member for and served for quite some time. Mm. Campaign manager for Dennis Burke. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah. And then when did you uh, put your hand up, uh, hand up to, uh, to run for a seat? Um, the, the question, yeah, the good question. Well, it, there's a lot of things that happened during that time, but um, this is a, a podcast that's going to go forever. So <laughs> it was actually in 1999. Right. It became clear that Barry Coulter uh, was, he'd, he'd uh, achieved what he'd been wanting to achieve, the railway and so on, that he wanted then to retire. Mm. And then there were call for nominations. At that time, the party weren't particularly keen on me. I sort of didn't fit the mould. I was a principal of a Christian school. I was in grassroots, involved in the community. Um, but I did have community support. Yeah. That's quite an essential ingredient yes. in politics. Yes. And um, so I um, uh, had a bit of a fight to be able to get recognised. And uh, the party machine had uh, someone else in mind. Yeah. I won't mention their name, but historians have rather worked that out. Mm. At the end of the day, even though the party tried not to have me endorsed, uh, the will of the grassroots community was, no, that Terry should be our representative. And uh, they said, oh, fine. And I had a, an electorate that hard for CLP to win, which is Molden and Gray and places like that. But yes. they're my community. They, yes. I said, yeah, good on you. You've given me people that I can really work for. Yes. So I won that and I've won every, won every, won every time since. Um, and here I am again, haven't actually missed any election since 1999. Wow. Even though I stepped out and worked in Jakarta for a couple of years, but wow. I didn't miss an election. Yes. But mm. So you, you uh, the first time you were elected to office was in the, which, which election was that? July 1999. No. It was a by-election. Paul Henderson oh, and myself 
got elected on the same day. Is that right? Yeah. You and Paul Henderson yeah. about that. Right? Yeah. Uh, and so uh, then the 2001 election happened, which was when the CLP eventually yes. lost office after yeah. 27 years or something. That's right, that yeah. So I was... Um, um, I did something that the others didn't. I increased my vote <laughs> and <laughs> theirs didn't. And uh, they were now reduced and in opposition for the very first time in their living history. Yes. And so it was a real psychological, emotional adjustment for the organisation. For me, I felt like I'd sort of I, I'd cracked the, the code. You, you just yeah. simply engage people, yeah. you know, feel their pulse. You don't have to sort of impose some culture or idea on them. Um, so Authenticity, if you will. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so they, they, they said, oh, Terry, you, you should be the leader. I said, oh, hang on. Not so long ago you didn't <laughs> want me at all. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so how many people were left uh, at the 2001 election? Ten, I think. Oh, there was ten. Right. Yeah. So you're the leader of ten. No, no, I wasn't the leader. Okay. No, uh, so Dennis Burke retained his position as leader. Right. People were saying, you know, we want to change. Terry, you should be the leader. And I said, oh, come on. Mm -hmm. like, I've only just walked in the door. Yes. And and I'm not really like, uh, you know, save it's football. You know, I'm not so passionate about the Collingwood Football Club that I'll die for the Collingwood Football <laughs> yes, Club. Yes. I would like, I, I would like move, to see the Terry. code improve. Smart move. Have I? Yeah, sorry. I hope I didn't offend you there. Um, no, no, I said smart move. Yeah, smart move. Thank you. <laughs> Peter's a diehard footy fan. He watches the footy, I think, about you know, 12 hours each weekend. I haven't quite yep. fully understood all of that, but yeah. So this is, how, this is how it works in my house, gentlemen. If someone says to you, who do you support? There's a simple answer. I bag for the Lions and anyone playing Collingwood. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, you know, that was a bit of a challenge, um, and they putting pressure on me to be the face of the change for the country Liberal Party, and, you know, I laboured over that, and in, in the end, I, I, I relented and said, all right, I will become the opposition leader. They're all rejoiced, and, and, and then all the characters changed positions on deck, and because um, they all had their particular agendas, and I was um, trying to do the right thing, and I found that um, it was pretty hard to deal with the underlying culture and, and it was becoming harder and harder. Uh, so in the end, I said, no, forget this. And I actually, after 18 months or so, I said, no, I'm, I'm leaving this be and I'm going to support you guys in a manner unlike I was supported. And I just handed the leadership over because uh, I was always interested in how do we do things differently? You know, if we just keep doing this sort of Game of Thrones business was leaving me cold and my community wasn't being serviced by it. So I was leader of the opposition and just before the election, a lot of agitation for me to change tack or be someone different, I then handed it over and supported uh, that what happened at that election was that every one of them except me was removed from office. Yes. So I was the only one left north of Catherine. What, what year was that? 2000, it must have been 2005. Five. Yes. Yeah, 2005. And, and, then, and, who was, and who was the leader at that time? Dennis Burke. Dennis Burke, right. And he was in Brennan and he lost his he seat. Lost his seat, yes. Yeah, they were swept, swept clean. Yeah. So guess what happened then? The party then turns their attention and says, Terry, you should be the leader. <laughs> yeah, I've been there. I, it, I've worked it out. I, I'm, but, so you were the leader at some point between 2001 and 2005? Correct, yes. For how long? Uh, less than two years. Okay, so you you took the, the realm then? From Dennis. From Dennis, yeah. right. And then what, you just handed it back to Dennis? Yeah, that's right. I thought, this is, this is crazy. Right. 
I mean, I thought the energy should be focused on problem solving for yeah. the community. Yeah. And I thought if you, re you really nod your head to the community genuinely, they will support you, as I demonstrated yes. again and again. Mm -hmm. yes. But it, they didn't seem to get that. Yes. So I thought well, the best thing to do is I don't want to create a problem here. So yes. step aside. If you think you can do it better, I will support you. Yes. I won't create a problem. I won't undermine. Yes. And away they went. And, and so 2005, if my memory serves correctly, there was what four people. Only was, four of us. Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, two two in Alice Springs was yeah. Richard Lim, yes, Jodine Carney, Jodine Carney, that's it, and Faye Miller, right, and Catherine, and Catherine. So you're the only one in Darwin. Yeah, <laughs> north of Catherine. Yeah, that's right. right. Um, and uh, and they asked me to be the leader. Yeah. I said no. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I want to work this out. Yes. I don't think this is the right approach. Yes. So Jodine, Jodine yes. became the leader. They nominated her. Yes. She asked me to be the deputy. I said, no. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so then there was... Any title with leader in it, I'm not interested. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and so there was only three positions available and four of us in the parliamentary whip. I said, that's you, Richard. I'm sitting on the outside trying to work this out. Right. And then through between 2008, 2005, 2009, I really worked out, if I decide, I decide. Yes. I'm not going to be trying to please people. Yeah. So in about 2006, I made a decision that I would, I said to Jodine, nothing hidden, I said, Jodine, I think it's time for a change. I'm prepared to lead. Um, she accepted it because the numbers were against her, but then she didn't accept it by the way she behaved. But that's another story. It's her issue. <laughs> and... Um, and then we came within 40 votes of winning the government, from four to within 40 votes of winning government. What year was that? 2008. 2008. Yeah, and wow. those 40 votes were in Fanny Bay. Michael Gunner won by 40 votes against Gary Lambert. Right. So that was a shock yeah. that, that we could do so well. Yes. But um, in the, that resulted in the CLP and all the those in, in its organisation thinking, oh, power is within reach now. Right. So it, it made my task as leader, who had actually delivered yeah. them to this position, quite difficult yes. because there was contention over how you should operate. And yeah. I did the mm -hmm. best I could. And in the end, um, they, tried, they tried a number of times with Giles and Tolner and the supporters in the party to, to um, have me removed or excommunicated for crimes unspecified. <laughs> yeah. So I thought, oh, goodness me. So it became silly, and, yeah. but, but I thought, I'm just going to keep my eyes on the community and, and do the best I can, and hopefully uh, we'll turn this around. Yes. But we went to the 2012 election, and we won. Yes. Uh, but the, the eve of me, um, uh, at the start of that new government, they were also, right now, it's time to get rid of Terry. Right. And so six months later... Uh, while I was in Japan. So you were like Moses leading them to the promised land. Yeah. They wanted to top you as soon as they got there. Yeah, yeah. And I said, oh, well, you know, that's um, that's the way you want it. And, and I said, gee whiz, I'd much prefer to be in my position than in yours. You know, like yeah. if innocent blood's been shed here, and I, I don't really think I've done anything that warrants this, but if that's the way politics is being played out and you're willing to play that out publicly, yeah. ooh, I'd prefer to be in my spot than in yours. Yes. And in the, the last election showed that. But let's rewind back because mm. Terry, one of the things that I know Peter and I are both deeply interested in mm. is the trip to Japan. Yeah. What happened there? Like, how, how, you know, obviously there was some acrimony before you left. It was certainly the knives were being sharpened oh, as yeah, you were yeah, leaving. Yeah. 
and then you got on the plane and went to Japan to sign a deal with Impex, or what, what happened? Yeah, it was, um, it, it was the, 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 the facility, the receiving facility for the, for the LNG that departs here, yes. and it arrives there at uh, the port uh, in, I've forgotten the name of the port, it'll come to me later, it was to, to see where our LNG was going. So and, the ship. Yeah, so right. a ship with LNG yes. would would dock at this this port, yes. Noitsu, Noitsu, yeah. and and that's where it would be turned back into gas, and all the pipelines would take it across right. across uh, Japan. So and then it was uh, JKC uh, meetings in Yokohama. Uh, I I was told by many people that don't go, don't go, because you know there's trouble afoot. You know it was quite obvious. The media were having a field day. It was great fun. You know. Uh, attack uh, the leader and undermine and leaking everywhere. And I thought, oh, look, if I turn my attention to try and capture this storm and, and deal with it, I'm taking my energy away from the job I was asked to do. So I just simply focused on on the task and I thought ultimately, one way or another, it's it's got to come to some end, mm. whether it's quick or slow. So I simply said, well, I've just got to do my job. Yeah. Uh, this is a, an important meeting. So I, I went to Japan. Um, and that was my position that, I, you know, I thought, surely not. They wouldn't do something like that. Well, they did. Well, I was in a meeting in Yokohama. <laughs> I had my phone in my pocket and it was buzzing like crazy. <laughs> yeah. And I had a sense that there'd be some trouble at home. Yeah. Uh, and I'd seen, you know, they might think I'm dumb, but I could see very clearly what was going on right. uh, in, in the quest for power for a position that didn't wasn't actually theirs, but they wanted it. And uh, so I desist myself and I just got to go and listen to the phone calls. A couple of people in my office saying, Terry, it's on. Um, they've, they've got the numbers. Um, so I've got two options. I thought, well, one is to come back and fight, mm. like Adam did. Mm -hmm. Or say, well, there are more important things here. Uh, if that's the way you want to go, I'm not going to create a problem. But I didn't want to go... Um, you know, I've pretty much exhausted anyway. I've exhausted all options. The media were, you know, they tasted blood. The NT News, I've told them a number of times, you contributed to this. Mm. Um, In what way, Terry? Oh, feeding the, you know, feeding the, uh, those who were undermining democracy, those who were running their private agendas. There were lies being told, uh, which I, you know, I, I won't share now, but I've got friends in the media say, so you can believe what they're saying, yeah. even about my personal relationship. It's completely false. Mm. But to create mm. misinformation and disruption, and I thought, oh, dearly, you know, power must be a fairly attractive thing if you want to do that. I always had my, my sensibilities around the ordinary people. Mm. So I thought, well, this is, going to, this is not turning out the way I thought it was going to turn out. But So I thought, oh, I've just got to have a, provide a good example. So I, I accepted it. I came um, and returned and said, that's the way you want it. I, I simply sat in a different seat in the parliament. I turned up to every meeting, um, sat there quietly. Uh, they felt very uncomfortable with me being there. Uh, <laughs> some of the um, uh, good Indigenous members who were supporters of mine felt ashamed. Um, but uh, I wanted each of them to say, well, you know, look, I haven't changed, okay? So I sat there quietly and I had for one year worked at, my big question was, where can I add, best add value? I mean, if I sit here in the parliament and I've seen what Julia Gillard and uh, Kevin Rudd had done yes. by constantly fighting to get back into power by destabilising yeah. or whatever. 
And I thought, that's not helping anybody. Yes. So I thought the so best... So you actually adopted really quite a biblical stance on this by turning the other cheek. Yeah, I thought that was a more powerful position. Terry, mm. uh, can these I ask a question there, Terry? Yeah, mate. So, sorry, but I'm, I'm really interested to know whether, whether you can put your finger on... Um, the the mood at that time politically because uh, as you've both just touched on and and then we we saw again um when when abbott got in that what was this mood for change that continued to happen to these first term governments what happened to the mood for change that's a good question um a mood for change is a is, a, is an emotion and and i've spoken to two community groups recently I said you know the mood for change at the moment is uh, is uh, an angry tone and you are angry at the government and so you are going to fix the problem that you're all experiencing by getting rid of the government and then the question that is harder and needs a different kind of leadership to say and then what what happens then I said mm. well we've seen that twice now you're angry at the current government you're going to get rid of them and then what so that's what happens in that mood for change. We, uh, as, as, as people, uh, we are easily able to tear something down and break something, but it's much harder to f fix something or lift it up. And that's mm -hmm. the missing part. And our political system has made that quite difficult. And I think there's a lot of power has gone to the media uh, people have now become more isolated and separated so that they can feed uh, their their narrow views uh, by getting into small communities that share that common view. And the ordinary person, the quiet Australians, uh, feel that they're outside of all this. They think they're the minority, but they're not. They're actually a larger group, but they feel completely disenfranchised. So, yeah. so that's what happened with Trump. Hell of a lot of noise but he got a read on another group that was not, not talking much. And I, I still believe that they're there. And that's what happens with the mood for change. It's not uh, the media, social media, uh, people are less connected these days. And I think, uh, and, and probably I think to be frank, quite selfish, uh, they want yep. there. Um, you know, if I said, I'm gonna reduce the cost of living, well, they sort of want that to happen immediately. <laughs> it's a bit more complicated. You know, I said, you know, the cost of living is related to the massive burden, debt burden that we're carrying, and that, that burden is going to weigh your kids' futures down. We have to lighten that load. So that's reducing the cost of living. A bit too abstract. They want it now. They want to be able to have more money to spend on things today. So, But that's unfortunately what the political class has given them. Short-term, yeah. quick fixes. So and it's wrong. So you don't really have the people that are willing to walk 27 miles to uh, chop uh, That's right. land with a an yeah. yeah, or fight for something you really believe in, you know, bigger than yourself. And that's why I'm, I'm, I'm impressed that I only had to have a second look. I drive around the town and I, I connect with the people that are in the houses. And I know that some of them are on, on clubs, associations, committees or volunteers. Those people are the salt of the earth. I would like to have a structure, a political structure, where anyone who's actually involved in any um, official level or semi-official level of a representative group, no matter what it is, they should all be recognised and brought together because they all have different views and they're all doing something similar. I'd like them to be my branch. 
so that I can I can really directly engage with what's happening on the grassroots and they can understand that the decisions may not be black and white, they may be a little bit more complex than they first appear. Mm. And they've been deceived into thinking that they are simple. So Terry, just to complete the story, yep. you, I want to take you back to where you were with the CLP. Uh, you, you got you know, deposed as chief minister, yep. you attended the meetings, uh, you, you were saying, you sat there quietly, then what happened? Oh, then I had the big question where do I best add value? Because of Rudd and Gillard and that example at that time, and we had um, uh, Ted Bailey in, in Victoria, then he fell. Um, I thought, it's not going to help anyone if I, you know, if, if I was to speak up about the things that concern me in the parliament, it would be seen through the lens of me trying to get back. Mm -hmm. I thought that's not the case, but that's how it would be interpreted. I've seen how the media works and I've seen all those trolls you know, they like to um, engorge themselves and that kind of stuff and feed off each other. So, and I thought, well, if I speak up, I'm going to create a problem. If I say nothing, people think, what's the point in being there? Mm -hmm. So I, I then decided uh, that I had two options, stay in the parliament or go and serve uh, the interests, uh, the bilateral interests in Jakarta. So I then decided that I would go and, and at work. So you uh, resigned from Parliament? Yeah, so once I set things up and determined that's the way I was going, to, going and I had, I had encouragement from many people who understand that space that I would be good in that spot. So I went and started my own consultancy. I advised uh, uh, Adam Giles that that was my decision. How uh, did he take it? He was delighted. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> and he probably told me that he's got this great idea. He's going to run a representative office in Jakarta. I said, oh, where'd you get that idea from? <laughs> anyway, I said, but I'm not working for you. Um, I'm, I will run my own consultancy and I will serve the interests of the government. Uh, uh, and so I'm free also to do other things. And I served on a, a, an advisory board for Julie Bishop and I did advisory work for for government it was a bit difficult because I think the greatest interest was having me out of the system. But I did my own uh, projects with cattle and uh, education in the eastern part of Indonesia, stuff I loved doing. But then uh, one, things went from bad to worse back at home in the Blaine electorate and uh, people saying, Terry, you should come back. Job's who, not done. Who, so who, who took over your seat? Nathan Barrett. Of course. Yes. Yeah. Right. So Nathan's a decent young fellow. Uh, I've known him for a long time and I, I encouraged him. Um, to stand and supported him in standing and uh, he got probably a bit caught up in the heady atmosphere of politics. Um, you need a certain you know, strength of character too and he's a good guy but I think he got distracted a bit, just to put it mildly. <laughs> and, uh, and, um, uh, and then when that embarrassing situation occurred, people, people had constantly been saying, Terry, you know, what's your view on what's happening? Why don't you come back? And I said, oh, seriously, Elvis has left the building. I'm, I'm finished. Uh, there's, I've got no more blood to shed. Uh, but when he fell, uh, people stepped it up and said, Terry, you should come back. Your job's not finished. I sensed that it wasn't finished, but I wanted it to be finished. So in the end, it was three weeks before the last election, I decided I'll do a surprise. Three attempt. weeks before the last election? Wow. Three weeks. I flew out of the sun and landed and said, right, game on gosh yeah. right. and I had okay. I had support grassroots support like I've never had before yes. ordinary people from everywhere came out to help me right and that was an encouragement I was sort of hoping this is a terrible thing to say is hoping that okay I'll do it and if I lose finished yes <laughs> but yeah, I won yeah. 
and um, <laughs> and then I'm sitting there. Was it a decisive victory? No, it wasn't decisive. Right. Um, it was on preferences. Yes. Um, you know, some from the CLP are sort of locked in. I'll say I split the CLP vote, but primary votes I matched Hale. Yes. Uh, Hale would have won. Yes. Um, and um, arguably, um, but he didn't. Yeah. yeah and Marie Claire Boothby. She and I have great friendship today. Uh, she's a great girl. Um, she um, she was a CLP candidate, excellent yes. candidate too. Yes. Um, yeah, so I then won and uh, I had to sit around and try to work out, this is a nut story for another podcast, the journey from that moment to now uh, uh, related to why, why I've chosen to uh, register a political entity called Territory Alliance. Well, you, we want to talk about that. Yeah, you? I know. <laughs> Don't worry. Uh, we're not the ABC or, or Channel Nine, so you can talk. There any the ad breaks? <laughs> we don't. We don't have to throw to an ad break, Terry. That's the best news. <laughs> so what? What caused that? Um, Four years as an independent, almost. Yeah, yeah. So three years, uh, and basically, I, I thought, well, I've done what 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 I think is right. I had a sense that it was incomplete. Ross knew it was incomplete. Yeah. But what was it? So I'm now an independent and people, you know, there's a classic mole for an independent, Jerry Wood, great guy. He is a classic independent. It's like even when he held the balance of power, he wanted to work with me. Yes. But the invitation came with, you can point to the things that need to be done, but I'm inviting you to be a part of the answer to the things that need to be done. Right. So when it comes from pointing to things that need to be done and then doing things that need to be done, it can challenge your popularity. It changes the paradigm a bit. Of course. So I'm not that kind of politician. I actually think that there's a problem uh, with the way it's structured at the moment. And it's like these, as I wrote in an article in the paper that's published today, it's like the, the party elephants are stomping around and having these big ponderous battles, but the citizen ants are being trampled on. Yes. And everywhere I go, people are feeling disconnected from the political process, that the reality gap between what's happening in their street doesn't match with what's happening in the parliament and all those highly paid young advisors that are on the fifth floor. The response that's coming from government doesn't seem to hit the target. Um, and then I've, I've been trying to work out what's wrong and then what needs to be done to fix it. So the first one is what's wrong. It's the mindset. Uh, talked about how people have been indulged, they've been told things by political party that vote for me and I will reduce the cost of living. So they naively think, I explain that it's going to be more complicated, complex than that, but they expect me to hear something they want, I'm going to do it. They believe it doesn't happen exactly the way they thought it was. So there's a lack of trust and they think this is getting silly. Uh, but there's the other one that I realise what's going on is that the two parties, um, the two major parties, their mindset is how to win the election. So if you're trying to solve a problem, like, you know, being on the farm, you're trying to solve a problem, you actually want to see that problem as clearly as possible and understand the problem well in order to apply solutions. But if the problem, the economic problem, is seen as a political problem um, because certain measures might make you unpopular, you then favour the more popular short-term solution. So the whole thing is based on how to win the election. And by doing that, you you define all problems as political problems. Mm. And if it's defined as a political problem, then only can throw up political solutions because mm. the objective is winning. Okay. 
So, and I thought, well, that's the problem. You know, I don't want to run a crime meeting in Palmerston and, uh, and have them told stuff that doesn't really make sense or, or connect with what's actually going on on the streets or in households. And, um, and I thought, why don't we have an alliance of like-minded, sensible people that are not necessarily, um, you know, from a political party running the agenda of a party, but born out of their communities with a commitment to their communities and a preparedness to work in collaboration with other people and be focused on problem solving and make sure that we recognise that an economic problem uh, should be approached with open eyes and identified as a complex economic problem with many aspects to it, which needs many voices to assist in solving that, just as the social problems, the crime, juvenile crime, etc., is a complex social problem that requires many voices to provide solutions. And we've had such a narrow band of option when it comes to political parties saying tough, bold things that the community is starting to become wary of. And, you know, the, the Electoral Commission the other day was, you know, put something out there I think is shocking, is that the Northern Territory has the lowest voter turnout of any jurisdiction on the, in the Commonwealth. And is that because people are lazy and don't care? I think they've, they've, they don't see it's relevant anymore. They're disinterested. And, and if, that's, if we follow that trend and keep things the way they are, then I think we're in trouble uh, because the Commonwealth... Canberra, the Australian government, is going to be taking a dim view of this jurisdiction. They have responsibility for us as we have responsibility for ourselves as members of the Commonwealth. So I think we need to start to posture quite differently and take responsibility and provide some thoughtful leadership and involve more voices. So one of the things that I've noticed with, with uh, political parties, Terry, is that when they're in opposition, they just sound amazing. They sound fantastic. Their ideas, the you know the, the, the approach to problems and things like that, and, and you know, being able to see what the government is doing is wrong, and uh, just in, intense clarity. Yet it doesn't matter whether it's CLP or Labor. As soon as they get into power, the, the whole thing seems to change, mm. and everything seems to be thrown out the window. You mentioned the fifth floor and young advisors and things like that. It feels like both parties get caught up in all of this fifth floor bubble, hmm. and and then it's about staying in power, and hmm. it's not not about doing the things that you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. It's quite obvious that if we keep going down the same track, we're headed for disaster. The community is just they're they're struggling as it is just to to keep things together in their own homes. Uh, it's all right when the money's flowing in and things are going well and the fish are biting and all that sort of stuff and the kids are happy and they're safe on the streets. But when they're not, they're going to start demanding that our system responds to those needs. Now, in the early stages, uh, of course, it's, it's just too darn easy if you accept the paradigm of winning and losing. It's easy. Everybody knows it's easy to criticise. It's easy to pull down. It's easy to break. It's harder to fix. It's harder to lift up. It's harder to identify the virtuous thing that needs to be acknowledged, the efforts that are being made, rather than point attention to, draw attention to all those that are not doing the right thing. So that's missing from the whole dialogue. These are really complex issues. And I just watched that Winston Churchill movie, and uh, it was inspiring. 
the whole mood of the country was despondent. They were prepared to give up, surrender, or have some kind of formal appeasement with Nazi Germany. And, um, and out of that clear crisis came a willingness for people to work together in coalition and recognise it as a higher issue here, more than just winning. And uh, Winston Churchill was able to galvanise people to work together in coalition in the face of a crisis. And if we can't do that, then we've got ourselves a real problem. And I, for one, uh, uh, obviously I'll be leaving politics at some stage. My mum wants me to leave. My <laughs> wife would be unhappy if I did. But my job's not done. And, and I'm hoping to complete the job, but I don't want to leave with any regret. Now, if nobody wants to be involved in what I'm proposing, that's fine. If they're happy with the way things are, uh, all the best. Uh, maybe you could come up with a better idea. Um, uh, but I'm not much time for those that are saying, what's wrong with that idea? And, you know, Terry's has been and all this sort of stuff, whatever. Mm. Uh, we've got a, ourselves a challenge. I put something out there and I, I reckon that there's a, a lot of quiet people out there who want to have the courage to take a step in a different direction and I'm offering that. And so this is the Territory Alliance? Yeah. So when did you when did you launch that? Uh, launched, I guess, yesterday for, for want of a better word. See, it's not the classic party launch, you know, with balloons and streamers and stuff like that. It is a... People community. nodding behind you. What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, so well, it, it was, it's the, it's like I feel like, I, I feel like I've been working on an assignment, trying to work this out. Uh, we've had an alliance formed, which is uh, Robin, Yingya, Mark Gulia, and myself, and we've got an agreement of how we would operate as independents, but uh, how we would uh, solve problems together and what are our core principles. That's an alliance. We're still independents. But I realise that we're going to have ourselves a challenge because there will probably want to be more people who want to be um, independent. But the political parties will find it very difficult to have their power threatened by uh, an alternative. And if they are all independents, not aligned to any central organising principle, they can easily manage that yes. because of legal convention, if it's only convention. So I thought, okay, if we want to move the furniture, I have to register this as a political entity. And you've done that? It's in the process of, right. of being registered now. So constitution is formed. Right. Um, and what I'm doing now is simply explaining to people what this is, because I'm telling people this is not a spectator sport. It's not like, oh, let Terry have a go, see how he goes. And I said, no, come on, guys, we need people out of the bleachers to come and have a, to get involved in this, because if you're leaving it up to people that you can throw stones at, uh, we all end up with broken houses. So well, who's part of this party right now? Heaps of people. You know, that this is really a response to many, many people who have been probably hassling me to to respond to the vacuum. Yes. But I had to respond to it in a way that made sense to the territory. Yeah. You know, in the paper today, it uses the word that I've been flirting with other parties. Well, <laughs> I'm certainly not a flirt. <laughs> the fact is that's that um, other parties outside the territory have recognised what I could bring yes. and have engaged me. I have explored a couple of options with the National Party. 
Um, Australian Country Party has been courting me. Uh, Pauline Hanson, uh, even the Conservatives, and Bob Catter, bless his soul, all these people. And I think no, that's that's all fine, but what's fit for purpose for the Northern Territory? Right. Yeah, exactly. I'm thinking it's got to be something that's crafted for this community because I think what we're going to do here, if people want to buy in on this, uh, is something that's locally very relevant but nationally significant because the north of our country is is important but it's very poorly represented and we need to have a different model i think for the north now i've got good relations with scott morrison we've spent time together even before he's in politics as as prime minister and as a as a backbencher and as a minister so i i can relate to these people but I, I, I think we need to have the sort of community leadership that's supported by the by authentic voices in the community that start to stand up and, and be sensible about stuff. So there's a lot of people um, already, without it even being formally launched as such, um, people are signing up. Uh, people want to be candidates. And the independents in Parliament, are, are, would they be part of this group? Or? If they choose to be. Right. So uh, it's a different kind of approach. I'm seeing this more of a, as a movement rather than a classic party, like my team's going to be bigger than your team and my team's better than yours and yours is crap, you know, and that sort of stuff. It is really to put out a, there is a different approach here. There are two articles that have been published today that explain what this is about. I'm wanting people to start to really think about it. And for Robin Lamley, for example, she and I are very close. The agreement we have between us as two independents still stands. Yingia out there in um, Nullamboy still stands. but they must, I insist upon it, understand what this is, understand the need for it, and then engage your own communities. You're not, I'm not in the business of foisting something on a community. I'll be doing the same in my own electorate, explaining what this is. So I'm not, I'm not saying, here's something I've prepared before, like it or lump it. I'm explaining it respectfully to the people who that's exactly where the power must come from. And where are those two articles that have been written? Today's paper, NT News. Yeah, right. And and so how how would this party sit politically yeah. in terms of Labor and Brexit? That's a really good question. The ABC were really hot on this one, <laughs> trying to fit you into a box, you know, so they can write a name on it and then deal with you. Right. And say, well, you know, I said, you, ABC, you're pretty keen on this sort of stuff, aren't you? And it's an obvious question because that's the system we've operated with. Yeah. Honestly, believe any any thought given to the left and right um paradigm is actually um, doesn't really apply. Mm. I said it's, this is beyond left and right. Mm. And if you really look into the heart of the community, they have very right views when it comes to law and order or personal responsibility and freedoms. Yes. There's another view in the community that thinks that those people who are sitting under the water tower need to be treated and responded to for the problems that, that they represent. Yes. So you can can't lock them up. I, so that means you're left and right. Yes. And I, I, and but what I have as a central organising principle is that people, no matter what station, what class, are very valuable. Human beings are valuable. That's why our democratic system is valuable. That's why voices need to be properly heard and not corralled and uh, imposed upon by a, the current political process. So it, it would be left and right. It would be a reflection of the community. And I think after 20 years and then another 10 as a school principal, I've got an idea what what's sensible. I would say let's call it the sensible centre, yes. but with a focus on 
solving problems, not trying to outgun the others and say how clever you are and how bad they are. That could be very. That, that could be your uh, tagline, the sensible centre. Yes, I think, uh, a lot of people that would resonate. With yeah, you. that's right. What do you reckon, Pete? Well, I keep coming. I keep coming back to make the territory great again. But um, yeah, I, I could deal with <laughs> sensible centre. That's right. Yes. That's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Boundlessly possible. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, that's, that's right. Uh, that's uh, really interesting, uh, Terry. I, I had no idea that you were going to do this. No, I know you didn't. Um, and so, you know, even before yeah. we invited you on the podcast, yeah. you know, we, we wanted to just talk to you about your yeah. story. And yeah, it's yeah. a fascinating story. And as with all our guests, um, despite the length of time that I've known a person yeah. before they get on this podcast, at the end of it, I walk away thinking, my gosh, I didn't know that about Terry. So, Well, I'm thinking now of starting my own podcast show and I'm <laughs> going to interview you. So I don't know, I've known you for a long time, but I probably don't know enough about you. Well, Pete, have you got anything else that you want to ask Terry before we, uh, we cut to the next 18 podcasts with him? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I, I've, I've had my appetite completely wet today, Terry, but what I would say is that uh, Leon started this by saying that we are apolitical. Um, yeah. And I've said this now a couple of times, particularly recently when I listened to some of our guests and I feel like I'm the listener because, you know, I just felt like the stuff you were saying was, to me, as someone who um, very much comes from that background of what you described, Terry, you know, like you can you can always talk politicians down and you can always say that their ideas are terrible and what have you. Um, I just, and, and I'm not pandering here in any way, please, but I just found it refreshing because the, 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 the word authenticity, I said it earlier, it just rings true. I mean, at the end of the day, the people that vote are the ones that decide what happens. And if, if you're in touch with them and discussing with them what you do and what you're planning to do, you can't go wrong. And what's killing our country federally and state politics and territory politics is this bloody political games these parties are playing the whole time. And as you aptly said, it's all in the trying to win elections. Yes, that's right. And, yeah, it's frustrating. It sure is. You know, Peter, I... I I could galvanise, I believe, the community and bring them all together for a public meeting, but I've chosen not to do that with the crime stuff, rather deal with them house to house, because I'd be responsible for managing the anger that they have, and there's nothing to offer them uh, in the current yeah. system. So I want yeah. to be able to bring people together and tell them that there is something different. Yeah, look, I think that, that for me, is the key to this. Um, and you said, it, you said it very, very well. If, if, you, if you tell a mob hey, we're going to get you better cost of living, right? You said it, so when do I get it? That's it doesn't right. work like that. And yeah, this gradual like... <laughs> decline, on this process has happened over years. Absolutely. I can remember going to Adventure World on the Gold Coast and uh, we paid our money to go in and we had a damn good time. And people think that by I voted and I was working <laughs> pay my taxes, what more do you want from me? You know? Yeah, yeah. Yep. And uh, they think that the police should have stopped that criminal from breaking into their house, but it's a complicated one because some of the police get broken into. You know, like it's not as straightforward. You don't pay your entry fee and expect everything to be fine. We're all involved in it. 
Yeah, exactly. And and it yeah. is a process. And like you said, people's a way of dealing with things like law and order, uh, yeah. you know, fit certain political beliefs. But because yeah. you've only got to have a, a a brief scroll through the Darwin Have a Win sites or the other versions, and she's sometimes edifying reading. Yeah, and I I think to myself, thank God you people aren't in any position of power. I know, I know. <laughs> yeah. Um, today, actually, uh, it's a good, good uh, what you're saying there, Pete, is that an ABC journalist was saying, so you're going to have mandatory sentencing, are you? And I, <laughs> I, I said, if you, Adam, have you got children? He says, yes. I said, do you know how to handle them? So that's where we need to be thinking, not throwing around political slogans. Like the community knows how to, what's the right thing to do with kids. Yes. Isn't that funny, Pete? Yep. Thinking about the conversation you and I just had. I, I, as soon as Terry said that's exactly what I was thinking, but that definitely is another podcast. <laughs> All right, mate. Well, on Thanks, that mate. note, I'm going to throw, throw it back to Pete to close it off. And uh, I want to thank you very much for being that's on the podcast. Thanks to Terry Mills for joining us today on the Boundless Possible podcast. Uh, his new political alliance has been born. And uh, let's see what comes of it. I, I see a lot of optimism in the air. We'll catch you again next week on the Boundless Possible podcast. All right, Pete. I've got to go, buddy. But uh, I'll get that off you and we'll, we'll post it up tomorrow, eh? No worries. See you, gents. Thank you, Pete. Bye. So Bye. How, does it, how does it work?